Chapter Four of Pioneers of France in the New World, Part Two, Champlain and His Associates. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Pioneers of France in the New World by Francis Parkman, Part Two: Samuel Champlain and His Associates. Chapter Four: Lescarbot and Champlain, sixteen o five to sixteen o seven. Evil reports of a churlish wilderness, a pitiless climate, disease, misery, and death had heralded the arrival of De Monts. The outlay had been great, the returns small, and when he reached Paris, he found his friends cold, his enemies active and keen. Poutrincourt, however, was still full of zeal, and though his private affairs urgently called for his presence in France, he resolved, at no small sacrifice, to go in person to Acadia. He had, moreover, a friend who proved an invaluable ally. This was Marc Lescarbot, avocat en Parlement, who had been roughly handled by fortune, and was in the mood for such a venture, being desirous, as he tells us, to fly from a corrupt world in which he had just lost a lawsuit. Unlike Dumont, Poutrincourt, and others of his associates, he was not within the pale of the noblesse, belonging to the class of Jean de Robe, which stood at the head of the bourgeoisie, and which, in its higher grades, formed within itself a virtual nobility. Lescarbot was no common man, not that his abundant gift of verse-making was likely to avail much in the woods of New France, nor yet his classic lore, dashed with a little harmless pedantry, born not of the man but of the times, but his zeal, his good sense, the vigor of his understanding, and the breadth of his views were as conspicuous as his quick wit and his lively fancy. One of the best, as well as earliest, records of the early settlement of North America is due to his pen, and it has been said, with a certain degree of truth, that he was no less able to build up a colony than to write its history. He professed himself a Catholic, but his Catholicity sat lightly on him, and he might have passed for one of those amphibious religionists who in the civil wars were called les politiques. De Mont and Poutrincourt bestirred themselves to find a priest, since the foes of the enterprise had been loud in lamentation that the spiritual welfare of the Indians had been slighted. But it was Holy Week. All the priests were, or professed to be, busy with exercises and confessions, and not one could be found to undertake the mission of Acadia. They were more successful in engaging mechanics and laborers for the voyage. These were paid a portion of their wages in advance, and were sent in a body to Rochelle, consigned to two merchants of that port, members of the company. De Mont and Poutrincourt went thither by post. Lescarbot soon followed, and no sooner reached Rochelle than he penned and printed his Adieu à la France, a poem which gained for him some credit. More serious matters awaited him, however, than this dalliance with the muse. Rochelle was the centre and citadel of Calvinism, a town of austere and grim aspect, divided, like cisatlantic communities of later growth, betwixt trade and religion, and, in the interest of both, 
exacting a deportment of discreet and well-ordered sobriety. One must walk a straight path here, says Lescarbot, unless he would hear from the mayor or the ministers. But the mechanics sent from Paris, flush of money and lodged together in the quarter of San Nicolas, made day and night hideous with riot, and their employers found not a few of them in the hands of the police. Their ship, bearing the inauspicious name of the Jonas, lay anchored in the stream, her cargo on board, when a sudden gale blew her adrift. She struck on a pier, then grounded on the flats, bilged, careened, and settled in the mud. Her captain, who was ashore with Poutrincourt, Lescarbot, and others, hastened aboard, and the pumps were set in motion, while all Rochelle, we are told, came to gaze from the ramparts with faces of condolence, but at heart well pleased with the disaster. The ship and her cargo were saved, but she must be emptied, repaired, and reladen. Thus a month was lost. At length, on the 13th of May, 1606, the disorderly crew were all brought on board and the Jonas put to sea. Poutrincourt and Lescarbot had charge of the expedition, Demont remaining in France. Lescarbot describes his emotions at finding himself on an element so deficient in solidity, with only a two-inch plank between him and death. Off the Azores they spoke a supposed pirate. For the rest they beguiled the voyage by harpooning porpoises, dancing on deck in calm weather, and fishing for cod on the Grand Bank. They were two months on their way, and, when, fevered with eagerness to reach land, they listened hourly for the welcome cry. They were involved in impenetrable fogs. Suddenly the mists parted, the sun shone forth, and streamed fair and bright over the fresh hills and forests of the new world, in near view before them. But the black rocks lay between, lashed by the snow-white breakers. Thus, writes Lescarbot, doth a man sometimes seek the land as one doth his beloved, who sometimes repulseth her sweetheart very rudely. Finally, upon Saturday, the 15th of July, about two o'clock in the afternoon, the sky began to salute us, as it were, with cannon-shots, shedding tears, as being sorry to have kept us so long in pain. But whilst we followed on our course, there came from the land odors incomparable for sweetness, brought with a warm wind so abundantly that all the orient parts could not produce greater abundance. We did stretch out our hands as it were to take them, so palpable were they, which I have admired a thousand times since. It was noon on the 27th when the Jonas passed the rocky gateway of Port Royal Basin, and Lescarbot gazed with delight and wonder on the calm expanse of sunny waters, with its amphitheater of wooded hills, wherein he saw the future asylum of distressed merit and impoverished industry. Slowly, before a favoring breeze, they held their course towards the head of the harbor, which narrowed as they advanced but all was solitude, no moving sail, no sign of human presence. At length, on their left, nestling in deep forests, they saw the wooden walls and roofs of the infant colony. Then appeared a birch canoe, cautiously coming towards them, guided by an old Indian. Then a Frenchman, arquebus in hand, came down to the shore, and then from the wooden bastion sprang the smoke of a saluting shot. 
the ship replied, the trumpets lent their voices to the din, and the forests and the hills gave back unwanted echoes. The voyagers landed and found the colony of Port Royal dwindled to two solitary Frenchmen. These soon told their story. The preceding winter had been one of much suffering, though by no means the counterpart of the woeful experience of St. Croix. But when the spring had passed, the summer far advanced, and still no tidings of de Mont had come, Pongrave grew deeply anxious. To maintain themselves without supplies and succor was impossible. He caused two small vessels to be built, and set out in search of some of the French vessels on the fishing stations. This was but twelve days before the arrival of the ship Jonas. Two men had bravely offered themselves to stay behind and guard the buildings, guns, and munitions, and an old Indian chief named Memberton, a fast friend of the French, and still a redoubted warrior, we are told, though reputed to number more than a hundred years, proved a staunch ally. When the ship approached, the two guardians were at dinner in their room at the fort. Memberton, always on the watch, saw the advancing sail, and, shouting from the gate, roused them from their repast. In doubt who the newcomers might be, one ran to the shore with his gun, while the other repaired to the platform where four cannon were mounted, in the valorous resolve to show fight should the strangers prove to be enemies. Happily, this redundancy of metal proved needless. He saw the white flag fluttering at the masthead, and joyfully fired his pieces as a salute. The voyagers landed and eagerly surveyed their new home. Some wandered through the buildings, some visited the cluster of Indian wigwams hard by, some roamed in the forest and over the meadows that bordered the neighboring river. The deserted fort now swarmed with life, and, the better to celebrate their prosperous arrival, Poutrincourt placed a hogshead of wine in the courtyard at the discretion of his followers, whose hilarity in consequence became exuberant. Nor was it diminished when Pongras' vessels were seen entering the harbour. A boat sent by Poutrincourt more than a week before to explore the coasts had met them near Cape Sable, and they joyfully returned to Port Royal. Pongrave, however, soon sailed for France in the Jonas, hoping on his way to see certain contraband fur traders reported to be at Canso and Cape Breton. Poutrincourt and Champlain, bent on finding a better site for their settlement in a more southern latitude, set out on a voyage of discovery in an ill-built vessel of eighteen tons, while Lescarbot remained in charge of Port Royal. They had little for their pains but danger, hardship, and mishap. The autumn gales cut short their exploration, and after visiting Gloucester Harbor, doubling Minoinoi Point, and advancing as far as the neighborhood of Hyannis, on the southeast coast of Massachusetts, they turned back, somewhat disgusted with their errand. Along the eastern verge of Cape Cod, they found the shore thickly studded with the wigwams of a race who were less hunters than tillers of the soil. At Chatham Harbor, called by them Port Fortune, five of the company, who, contrary to orders, had remained on shore all night, were assailed as they slept around their fire, by a shower of arrows from four hundred Indians. Two were killed outright, while the survivors fled for their boat, bristling like porcupines with the feathered missiles, a scene oddly portrayed by the untutored pencil of Champlain. 
He and Poutrincourt, with eight men, hearing the war-hoops and the cries for aid, sprang up from sleep, snatched their weapons, pulled ashore in their shirts, and charged the yelling multitude, who fled before their spectral assailants and vanished in the woods. Thus, observes Lescarbot, did thirty-five thousand Midianites fly before Gideon and his three hundred. The French buried their dead comrades, but, as they chanted their funeral hymn, the Indians, at a safe distance on a neighboring hill, were dancing in glee and triumph, and mocking them with unseemly gestures, and no sooner had the party re-embarked than they dug up the dead bodies, burnt them, and arrayed themselves in their shirts. Little pleased with the country or its inhabitants, the voyagers turned their prow towards Port Royal, though not until, by a treacherous device, they had lured some of their late assailants within their reach, killed them, and cut off their heads as trophies. Near Mount Desert, on a stormy night, their rudder broke, and they had a hairbreadth escape from destruction. The chief object of their voyage, that of discovering a site for their colony under a more southern sky, had failed. Pongraff's son had his hand blown off by the bursting of his gun, several of their number had been killed, others were sick or wounded, and thus, on the 14th of November, with somewhat downcast visages, they guided their helpless vessel with a pair of oars to the landing at Port Royal. I will not, says Lescarbot, compare their perils to those of Ulysses, nor yet of Aeneas, lest thereby I should sully our holy enterprise with things impure. He and his followers had been expecting them with great anxiety. His alert and buoyant spirit had conceived a plan for enlivening the courage of the company, a little dashed of late by misgivings and forebodings. Accordingly, as Poutrincourt Champlain and their weather-beaten crew approached the wooden gateway of Port Royal, Neptune issued forth, followed by his tritons, who greeted the voyagers in good French verse, written in all haste for the occasion by Lescarbot. And as they entered, they beheld, blazoned over the arch, the arms of France, circled with laurels, and flanked by the scutcheons of Dumont and Poutrincourt. The ingenious author of these devices had busied himself, during the absence of his associates, in more serious labors for the welfare of the colony. He explored the low borders of the river Echil, or Annapolis. Here, in the solitude, he saw great meadows, where the moose with their young were grazing, and where at times the rank grass was beaten to a pulp by the trampling of their hoofs. He burned the grass and sowed crops of wheat, rye, and barley in its stead. His appearance gave so little promise of personal vigor that some of the party assured him that he would never see France again, and warned him to husband his strength. But he knew himself better, and set at naught these comforting munitions. He was the most diligent of workers. He made gardens near the fort where in his zeal he plied the hoe with his own hands late into the moonlight evenings. The priests, of whom at the outset there had been no lack, had all succumbed to the scurvy at St. Croix, and Lescarbot, so far as a layman might, essayed to supply their place, reading on Sundays from the scriptures, and adding expositions of his own after a fashion not remarkable for rigorous Catholicity. Of an evening, when not engrossed with his garden, he was reading or writing in his room, 
perhaps preparing the material of that history of New France, in which, despite the versatility of his busy brain, his good sense and capacity are clearly made manifest. Now, however, when the whole company were reassembled, Lescarbot found associates more congenial than the rude soldiers, mechanics, and laborers who gathered at night around the blazing logs in their rude hall. Port Royal was a quadrangle of wooden buildings, enclosing a spacious court. At the southeast corner was the arched gateway, whence a path, a few paces in length, led to the water. It was flanked by a sort of bastion of palisades, while at the southwest corner was another bastion, on which four cannon were mounted. On the east side of the quadrangle was a range of magazines and storehouses, on the west were quarters for the men, on the north a dining hall and lodgings for the principal persons of the company, while on the south, or water side, were the kitchen, the forge, and the oven. Except the garden patches and the cemetery, the adjacent ground was thickly studded with the stumps of the newly felled trees. Most bountiful provision had been made for the temporal wants of the colonists, and Lescarbot is profuse in praise of the liberality of de Mont and two merchants of Rochelle, who had freighted the ship Jonas. Of wine in particular the supply was so generous that every man in Port Royal was served with three pints daily. The principal persons of the colony sat, fifteen in number, at Poutrincourt's table, which, by an ingenious device of Champlain, was always well furnished. He formed the fifteen into a new order, christened l'Ordre du Bon Temps. Each was Grand Master in turn, holding office for one day. It was his function to cater for the company, and, as it became a point of honor to fill the post with credit, the prospective Grand Master was usually busy for several days before coming to his dignity in hunting, fishing, or bartering provisions with the Indians. Thus did Poutrincourt's table groan beneath all the luxuries of the winter forest. Flesh of moose, caribou, and deer, beaver, otter, and hare, bears, and wildcats, with ducks, geese, grouse, and plover, sturgeon, too, and trout, and fish innumerable, speared through the ice of the Achille, or drawn from the depths of the neighboring bay. And, says Lescarbot, in closing his bill of fare, whatever our gourmands at home may think, we found as good cheer at Port Royal as they at their Rue aux Ours in Paris, and that, too, at a cheaper rate. For the preparation of this manifold provision, the Grand Master was also answerable, since, during his day of office, he was autocrat of the kitchen. Nor did this bounteous repast lack a solemn and befitting ceremonial. When the hour had struck, after the manner of our fathers they dined at noon, the Grand Master entered the hall, a napkin on his shoulder, his staff of office in his hand, and the collar of the order, valued by Lescarbot at four crowns, about his neck. The brotherhood followed, each bearing a dish. The invited guests were Indian chiefs, of whom old Memberton was daily present, seated at table with the French, who took pleasure in this redskin companionship. Those of humbler degree, warriors, squaws, and children, sat on the floor or crouched together in the corners of the hall, eagerly waiting their portion of biscuit or of bread, a novel and much coveted luxury. 
Being always treated with kindness, they became fond of the French, who often followed them on their moose hunts and shared their winter bivouac. At the evening meal, there was less of form and circumstance. And when the winter night closed in, when the flame crackled and the sparks streamed up the wide-throated chimney, and the founders of New France with their tawny allies were gathered around the blaze, then did the Grand Master resign the collar and the staff to the successor of his honors, and with jovial courtesy pledge him in a cup of wine. Thus these ingenious Frenchmen beguiled the winter of their exile. It was an unusually mild winter. Until January they wore no warmer garment than their doublets. They made hunting and fishing parties in which the Indians, whose lodges were always to be seen under the friendly shelter of the buildings, failed not to bear part. I remember, says Lescarbot, that on the 14th of January of a Sunday afternoon we amused ourselves with singing and music on the river Aquil, and that in the same month we went to see the wheat fields two leagues from the fort, and dined merrily in the sunshine. Good spirits and good cheer saved them in great measure from the scurvy, and though towards the end of winter severe cold set in, yet only four men died. The snow thawed at last, and as patches of the black and oozy soil began to appear, they saw the grain of their last autumn's sowing already piercing the mould. The forced inaction of the winter was over. The carpenters built a water-mill on the stream now called Allen's River. Others enclosed fields and laid out gardens, others again, with scoop-nets and baskets, caught the herrings and alewives as they ran up the innumerable rivulets. The leaders of the colony set a contagious example of activity. Poutrincourt forgot the prejudices of his noble birth, and went himself into the woods to gather turpentine from the pines, which he converted into tar by a process of his own invention. While Lescarbot, eager to test the qualities of the soil, was again, hoe in hand, at work all day in his garden. All seemed full of promise. But alas for the bright hope that kindled the manly heart of Champlain and the earnest spirit of the vivacious advocate. A sudden blight fell on them, and their rising prosperity withered to the ground. On a morning, late in spring, as the French were at breakfast, the ever-watchful Memberton came in with news of an approaching sail. They hastened to the shore, but the vision of the centenarian Sagamore put them all to shame. They could see nothing. At length their doubts were resolved. A small vessel stood on towards them and anchored before the fort. She was commanded by one chevalier, a young man from Saint-Malo, and was freighted with disastrous tidings. De Mont's monopoly was rescinded. The life of the enterprise was stopped, and the establishment at Port Royal could no longer be supported. For its expense was great, and the body of the colony being laborers in the pay of the company nor was the annulling of the patent the full extent of the disaster. For during the last summer the Dutch had found their way to the St. Lawrence and carried away a rich harvest of furs, while other interloping traders had plied a busy traffic along the coasts, and in the excess of their avidity dug up the bodies of buried Indians to rob them of their funeral robes. It was to the merchants and fishermen of the Norman, Breton, and Biscayan ports 
exasperated at their exclusion from a lucrative trade, and at the confiscations which had sometimes followed their attempts to engage in it, that this sudden blow was due. Money had been used freely at court, and the monopoly, unjustly granted, had been more unjustly withdrawn. De Mont and his company, who had spent a hundred thousand livres, were allowed six thousand in requital to be collected, if possible, from the fur traders in the form of a tax. Chevalier, captain of the ill-omened bark, was entertained with a hospitality little deserved, since, having been entrusted with sundry hams, fruits, spices, sweetmeats, jellies, and other dainties sent by the generous de Mont to his friends of New France, he with his crew had devoured them on the voyage, alleging that, in their belief, the inmates of Port Royal would all be dead before their arrival. Choice there was none, and Port Royal must be abandoned. Built on a false basis, sustained only by the fleeting favor of a government, the generous enterprise had come to naught. Yet Poutrincourt, who in virtue of his grant from de Mont owned the place, bravely resolved that, come what might, he would see the adventure to an end, even should it involve immigration with his family to the wilderness. Meanwhile, he began the dreary task of abandonment, sending boatloads of men and stores to Canso, where lay the ship Jonas, eking out her diminished profits by fishing for cod. Memberton was full of grief at the departure of his friends. He had built a palisaded village not far from Port Royal, and here were mustered some four hundred of his warriors for a foray into the country of the Armouchiquois, dwellers along the coasts of Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and western Maine. One of his tribesmen had been killed by a chief from the Saco, and he was bent on revenge. He proved himself a sturdy beggar, pursuing Poutrincourt with daily petitions, now for a bushel of beans, now for a basket of bread, and now for a barrel of wine to regale his greasy crew. Memberton's long life had not been one of repose. In deeds of blood and treachery he had no rival in the Acadian forest, and, as his old age was beset with enemies, his alliance with the French had a foundation of policy no less than of affection. In right of his rank of Sagamore he claimed perfect equality both with Poutrincourt and with the king laying his shriveled forefingers together in token of friendship between peers. Calumny did not spare him, and a rival chief intimated to the French that, under cover of a war with the Armouchiquois, the crafty veteran meant to seize and plunder Port Royal. Precautions, therefore, were taken, but they were seemingly needless, for their feasts and dances over, the warriors launched their birchen flotilla and set out. After an absence of six weeks, they reappeared with howls of victory, and their exploits were commemorated in French verse by the muse of the indefatigable Lescarbot. With a heavy heart the advocate bade farewell to the dwellings, the cornfields, the gardens, and all the dawning prosperity of Port Royal, and sailed for Canso in a small vessel on the 30th of July. Poutrincourt and Champlain remained behind, for the former was resolved to learn before his departure the results of his agricultural labors. Reaching a harbor on the southern coast of Nova Scotia, six leagues west of Canso, Lescarbot found a fishing vessel commanded and owned by an old Basque named Savolet, who for forty-two successive years 
had carried to France his annual cargo of codfish. He was in great glee at the success of his present venture, reckoning his profits at ten thousand francs. The Indians, however, annoyed him beyond measure, boarding him from their canoes as his fishing boats came alongside, and helping themselves at will to his halibut and cod. At Canso, a harbor near the strait now bearing the name, the ship Jonas still lay, her hold well stored with fish, and here, on the 27th of August, Lescarbot was rejoined by Poutrincourt and Champlain, who had come from Port Royal in an open boat. For a few days they amused themselves with gathering raspberries on the islands, then they spread their sails for France, and early in October 1607, anchored in the harbor of San Malo. First of Europeans, they had essayed to found an agricultural colony in the New World. The leaders of the enterprise had acted less as merchants than as citizens, and the fur-trading monopoly, odious in itself, had been used as the instrument of a large and generous design. There was a radical defect, however, in their scheme of settlement. Excepting a few of the leaders, those engaged in it had not chosen a home in the wilderness of New France, but were mere hirelings, without wives or families, and careless of the welfare of the colony. The life which should have pervaded all the members was confined to the heads alone. In one respect, however, the enterprise of de Mont was truer in principle than the Roman Catholic colonization of Canada on the one hand, or the Puritan colonization of Massachusetts on the other, for it did not attempt to enforce religious exclusion. Towards the fickle and bloodthirsty race who claimed the lordship of the forests, these colonists, excepting only in the treacherous slaughter at Port Fortune, bore themselves in a spirit of kindness contrasting brightly with the rapacious cruelty of the Spaniards and the harshness of the English settlers. When the last boatload left Port Royal, the shore resounded with lamentation, and nothing could console the afflicted savages but reiterated promises of a speedy return. End of chapter 4 Recording by Christine Dufour, Pioneer, California